Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. We're going to get into it. We are entering into year six, people. We made it. We made it through COVID. We made it through a lot of stuff. And here we are. Alive and well. Uh, If this is your home church, you know that uh, last weekend we concluded a pretty significant series, the longest one that we have been in 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 the history of the Father's House, where we spent 16 weeks looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and discussing this ancient church in Corinth. And, And every single week throughout that series, we reminded ourselves of the similarities between that ancient city and our modern city of San Francisco. Oh, there's Mondo. Good to see you, bro. Hey, congratulations on your baby. Hey, all right. (laughs) And I'm going to leave it there, otherwise it's going to get weird. Uh, But we reminded ourselves of the similarities between those two cities. Uh, Similarities that that gave birth to a number of problems within the church because many of these new believers in Corinth were adopting and practicing the wicked ways of the culture around them. But every single week we reminded ourselves in that series that when God sees a sexually perverse or a sinfully indulgent or a wily city like Corinth or San Francisco, he does doesn't see a place that is beyond the reach of his grace. He doesn't see a spiritual wasteland that he is uninterested in investing in. He sees ground that is good soil, ripe for a harvest. The perfect place to plant a church like the one you see right here because he knows, as we've come to know, that the light of the gospel works best in the darkest of places. But as we concluded that series last weekend, we reminded ourselves that such a harvest, such a move of God, it does not come without a fight. There's going to be a battle involved if we're going to see everything that God has made available to us. As we said, opposition often lies in the doorway of opportunity because Paul tells us in the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians that when God opens a wide door for a good work, there are many spiritual adversaries. But as believers, we now understand opposition and adversaries are not an excuse for us to run and flee. They are an invitation for us to dig our heels in and fight for everything that God has made available to us. We're going to fight for those open doors. But when we engage in spiritual battle, it is also important to remember what Paul tells the Corinthians in his second letter. He says, the weapons of your warfare, they are not carnal, but they are mighty to pull down spiritual strongholds. We are not waging war against flesh and blood enemies, but we are fighting spiritual principalities and demonic forces in the present realm. In other words, our opposition is not against people. We're not fighting against people. The enemy might use people in that process, but people are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. And if we are going to engage appropriately with the enemy in spiritual battle, we need to wield the appropriate weapons lest we end up being defeated. And when it comes to spiritual weapons, few are more powerful than the weapon of promise. David says in Psalms chapter 91, God, your faithful promises are a shield and a sword. They are both offensive and defensive. When God makes a promise to you, it becomes a shield that you can hide behind in the midst of discouragement when you're wondering if God is going to fulfill what he promised. But it also becomes the very weapon you fight the enemy with when he tries to convince you that God is going to fail. That promise becomes the sword that you wield in the midst of your waiting, understanding that if God promised it, he will be faithful to bring it to completion. 
And, <laughs> thank you, Susan and your friend. All right, there we go. It's okay. The rest of them will catch up with your faith eventually. All right, it's going to be good. <laughs> Promise is an incredibly effective weapon, which, which brings us to this chair that you see on the stage and that you saw in that video. This is comfortable. You guys get to do this the whole time. I never get to do this, so I'm going to just sit here for a little bit and enjoy myself. But it brings us to this chair. And the reason it brings us to this chair is because it is in this chair where God gave me and gave us such a weapon to fight with, the weapon of promise. Uh, on October 9th, 2017, I was sitting in this chair in a faraway land known as Vacaville. Or Vacaville para mis hermanos que hablan español, which means cow town, which is exactly what it sounds like, yeah. If you're unfamiliar with Vacaville, uh, it's the place that you stop to pee on your way to Tahoe. Or where you charge your Tesla while you go shopping at the outlets, all right? It's, it's good for a few things, for sure. Uh, but uh, at the time, it was the place of residency for our family. And although we lived in Vacaville, um, our hearts were here in San Francisco because for the better part of two years, God had been speaking to us, giving us dreams and visions for the community you see before you right now, speaking to us about planting a life-giving church in the Sunset District of San Francisco. Uh, but... When I sat there in that chair, I, I did not realize in that moment that God was about to completely change my perspective, my vision of what he would do in this city. I, I, I sat down and opened up my Bible, found myself in the book of Isaiah, chapter 62, which is titled, Isaiah's Prayer for Jerusalem. And although I had read this passage of scripture many times before, God was about to highlight some things that I had never seen. In fact, as I began to read this familiar text, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, this might be titled Isaiah's Prayer for Jerusalem, but this is going to be your prayer for San Francisco because this is my heart for that city. And as I began to read, the Holy Spirit invited me to do something I didn't know I was allowed to do at the time. I'm not quite sure if I'm allowed to do it now, but I do it anyway. And that is, I removed the word Jerusalem from the text, and I replaced it with the word San Francisco as I began to pray for the city that God was calling us into. And as I read, it went a little bit like this. Because I love Zion, I will not keep still. Because my heart yearns for San Francisco, I cannot remain silent. I will not stop praying for her until her righteousness shines like the dawn and her salvation blazes like a burning torch. The nations will see your righteousness. World leaders will be blinded by your glory. And you will be given a new name by the Lord's own mouth. The Lord will hold you in his hand for all to see. A splendid crown in the hand of God. Never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Your new name will be the city of God's delight and the bride of God. For the Lord delights in you and will claim you as his bride. Your children will commit themselves to you, O San Francisco, just as a young man commits himself to his bride. And then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. O San Francisco, I've posted watchmen on your walls. They will pray day and night continually. Take no rest, all you who pray to the Lord. Give the Lord no rest until he completes his work, until he makes San Francisco the pride of the earth." 
The Lord has sworn to San Francisco by his own strength. I will never again hand you over to your enemies. Never again will foreign warriors come and take away your grain and new wine. You raise the grain and you're gonna eat it, praising the Lord. Within the courtyards of your temple, you yourselves will drink the wine you have pressed. So go out through the gates. Prepare the highway for my people to return. Smooth out the road. Pull out the boulders. Raise a flag for all the nations to see. The Lord has sent this message to every land. Tell the people of San Francisco, your Savior is coming, and he's bringing a reward with him as he comes. And they will be called the holy people, the people redeemed by the Lord. And San Francisco will be known as the desirable place and the city no longer forsaken. As I sat in this chair, the weight of those words just began to settle on me in our living room as I began to catch a glimpse of what, what God wanted to do in this city, not just through a community, but through the collective churches that are preaching life in the city of San Francisco. He, he had not called us to just plant some cute little church in the corner of the city that might help a few people. No, he was about to pour out his spirit over this city in a significant way. He would bring revival and thousands of people would come to know Jesus. It would be so significant that it would change the very reputation of our city on an international scale. God was not done, our, our better days were not behind us. He was not done moving as he did in the 70s during the Jesus movement, but that there was a, a coming revival, an outpouring that would eclipse everything he's done in the past, where even more would come to know Christ and this city would look completely different as a result of what he was doing in and through the church. And he called us to be a part of it. And as we sit in this room now, some five years later, I can honestly say that we've seen glimpses of that. Bits and pieces of this promise that he's made to our city. I don't think that if someone had asked me five years ago to articulate what, what I believed we would see, that, that I would have been able to articulate what we have seen up until now. I did not know that God was going to do all that he's done in the last five years. I wish I'd known about COVID. I didn't. But I... Yet even in the midst of that, he forged something in us and purified us. And the bride came out on the other side healthier than ever. Look around. God's doing something in this community. But while I remain astounded and grateful for all that he's done, I remain faith-filled and hopeful for all he's going to do. Because if Isaiah chapter 62 is the promise, then my friends, we have not even seen a glimpse of what God will do in the years ahead. Because he shall do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask, think, or imagine. The reputation has not yet changed. The victory has not been won yet. So God is not finished with us and he's not finished with the city of San Francisco. There is still far more to fight for. And since we have more to fight for, then what I'd like to do in the coming weeks is to equip our community with this weapon called promise. I want all of us to collectively take a seat in this chair, not literally, but to experience the reality of what God spoke through this scripture to the Father's house in 2017. To look at this ancient text and realize that it has not just modern application, but present promise for each and every single one of us. That God has got something to do in the city of San Francisco and he's going to use all of us to do it. 
And as we step into this series, I want to offer what will be our title verse in the weeks to come. It'll serve as our series title as well. It's found near the conclusion of Isaiah chapter 62. It's in the 10th verse where he says this. Go out through the gates, smooth out the road, pull out the boulders, and prepare the way for my people to return. Those three words are going to serve as our series title and our anthem, and they stir me every single time I hear them. Prepare the way. I, I might just make that our theme for 2024 and the next song that we write here at the Father's House. Prepare the way. Because when I hear those words, I recognize the role that God has called us to play in this coming revival in San Francisco. It is the way of preparation. He has called his church to clear the road and prepare the way because the Savior is coming. And since that is the role that we are to play, I want to title this first sermon in this collection, Remove the Stones. Remove the Stones. If we are going to prepare the way, then we must remove the stones. And that is a task that I have become intimately familiar with, not just in the spirit as a pastor, <laughs> but in the natural as well. Uh, a few years ago, um, our family moved to a new house here in the neighborhood behind the church. New to us, it's, it was built in 1924, so she's been around for a while, but she looks pretty good for her age. And, uh, and when we moved, uh, unlike many of the, city, or the homes in the city and even homes on our street, um, ours does not have a garage attached to the basement in the front of the house. It has a one-car garage in this kind of like makeshift alley behind the house that is shared among all the neighbors. And at first it didn't bother me. I just thought, well, I'll park my car in the front like everybody else in the neighborhood. But then I discovered this beautiful truth that in order to park your car in front of your own house in San Francisco, you have to obtain a permit, which costs hundreds of dollars. And as a cheap individual, you know, I'm a pastor, we're balling on a budget out here. I, I, and out of, as a matter of principle, I'm like, I'm not paying to park in front of my own house. I, I'm gonna park in the back if it's free. Furthermore, I find it egregious that we have to pay to park in front of our own homes in San Francisco. I love our city, but come on, really? You can live on the street for free, but you're gonna pay to park here. Like, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> Sorry, too soon. Uh, <laughs> if there's any city officials in the room, that's my bad. I love you, thank you for what you do. <laughs> and I'm not looking in the direction of a few that I actually know are sitting here right now, and I repent. I didn't mean it, redact it from the recording. So we're gonna park in the back, but that presented a problem for us because uh, since many of our neighbors can afford to park in front of their houses or they have garages, they had neglected the alleyway behind the house. And so there's all this ivy overgrown and weeds and, and bushes. And in fact, in one section, uh, the yards of the neighbors behind us who live up on this hill and look down at the human debris below them and the much smaller houses, uh, their backyards had begun to crumble and make their way into the alleyway. And so there's rocks and dirt and the passageway was incredibly narrow. Uh, so, so narrow, in fact, that every time I tried to drive our car down the alleyway, the, the paint on the sides of the car was getting scraped, and the rocks were being kicked up into the wheel well and scratching the rims, and it just wasn't working for me. And so, after weeks of enduring this persecution, um, <laughs> I decided that it was time to do something about it, and I said, Tim, we're going to clear the alleyway. Now, that might sound really neighborly and kind and pastoral, but truth be told, I was not in the healthiest mental state when I made this decision. It was mid-COVID. I was a little jacked, so were the rest of us. And so 
the passive aggressive Pastor Tim got the best of me. And one morning I took some hedge trimmers and a shovel and I began to make my way down the alleyway and I'm mowing down ivy and bushes and cutting trees and doing all the stuff I need to do. And then when I had this pile of compost, I didn't put it in my trash can or in compost bags to leave in front of our house. I just chucked it over the fences of the neighbors who had let their yards overgrow as a reminder that they needed to pay attention to what was happening behind their houses. Just a little gentle nudge. And then when I got to the houses where the rocks and dirt had fallen from the neighbors above us, I made sure to shovel loud enough so that they came to the windows to see what was happening as I waved and just chuck the rocks into their backyard with a very frustrated look on my face. And I know it's petty and it's not pastoral, but that's where I was at at the time, all right? And I know someone's thinking, that's it. This is the last time I'm coming to the church. This guy doesn't be, he shouldn't be a pastor. And I think that sometimes too, so that's great. And I would love to tell you that, you know, after clearing the alleyway, I inspired all of our neighbors to take personal responsibility for their yards but I did not. <laughs> I would love to tell you that the anonymous letters I sent months later asking them to participate in cleaning up the alley bore some fruit, but those letters did not. In fact, the only thing that's happened a few months ago when I was doing my regular clearing, one woman stood at her window and just filmed me while I was doing it, dumping the rocks into her backyard. I'm like, who are you gonna tell? The police? Like, this guy's cleaning up my yard. Can you believe it? And I'm like, freaking Karen. All right, whatever. All right. <laughs> Strike two. Okay, yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> but nobody's done anything. And so every few months for the last few years, I take my hedge trimmers and I take my shovel and I walk into the alley and I begin to clear it out because I know that in order for me to park back there, someone needs to clear the road. I have discovered that in order for me to get home, a way needs to be prepared. Someone needs to remove the things on the road that are blocking access, otherwise I'd be prevented from going home. And essentially, this is what the prophet Isaiah is speaking of here in the 62nd chapter of his book. He's speaking of preparation that needs to take place in order for the people to get home. He's speaking both prophetically and metaphorically about a time that would take place after his death where the people of God, the Israelites, would come home to Jerusalem after spending years in captivity in Babylon. Many of you probably know the story if you've read the Bible before, but the, the Cliff Notes version is this. God brought his people into a beautiful land and he said, as long as you honor me, as long as I am your God and you serve no other gods but me, I will bless you in the land. I will prosper you in the land. No harm will befall you, but if you turn your back on me, I'll judge you the same way that I judge the nations I evicted on your behalf. And at first the people did well, but after a few years they began to embrace the cultures of the surrounding nations, going as far as to sacrifice their own children in the fire to pagan gods and erect idols in the house of God and engage in sexually perverse practices as a form of worship to gods which are no gods at all. And for decades God sent the prophets to warn them Hey, if you don't quit, if you don't knock it off, judgment is coming. Not because I'm an angry God, but because we made a covenant together. 
And for years, the people ignored the warnings and turned their back on God until such a time that God felt judgment needed to come. And so he allowed the Babylonians to invade the city of Jerusalem. They decimated the city and they carried the people of God off to captivity in Babylon. Not because he didn't love them, but because he needed to purify his people. But from the moment the city was decimated and from the moment they were carried off into captivity, God had a plan, a plan to bring them back home. As he said through the prophet Jeremiah, I have good plans for my people to prosper them and not to harm them, to give them a hope and a future. I'm not done with the people of Israel and I'm not done with their city. I will restore and bring them back to myself. Yes, there was judgment, but judgment was for the purpose of purification. But now that they've been purified, I want them restored. And so he initiated a plan to bring his people back home. But in order for them to come home, the road needed to be cleared. There were some things that needed to be addressed, both in the natural, after a highway remained unused for a period of time, it needed to be physically cleared, but also, and perhaps more importantly, in their hearts, some things needed to be cleared out. Some rocks that were in the roadway that needed to be removed. As the prophet Ezekiel told them, I wanna give you a new heart and a new spirit to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And as it was for Israel, so it is for all of us. God longs to see humanity restored unto himself. He wants every person to be in the Father's house, not a church in the corner of 19th and Sloat, but among the believers in the community of faith to come home to him. But in order to do so, there are some stones that need to be addressed some rocks that need to be removed. Things that are probably familiar to many of us in the room having traversed through those pathways before, but perhaps even more familiar to others who find themselves here today feeling incapable of being united with God on account of some of the rocks and the stones in our hearts that keep us at a distance. And since you know I love props, I'm gonna use them right now as I show you what some of those rocks might look like. Thank you to the Masons who have an endless supply behind these curtains. Maybe one of the rocks that people deal with is the rock of dead religion. It's, I've had this conversation so many times with individuals in, in the church that have come from various backgrounds of faith. They were part of a church or a religious organization and they grew up in a community that knew rules apart from relationship with God. The, the leaders of those communities, they, they used fear and judgment and anger as their primary motivational tactics. And they bashed you over the head with their rules and their obligations. But there was never a true relationship between you and God. All you knew was a form of religion that had no life and only brought death. And it is not uncommon for people who grow up in, in communities like that or in spaces like that to vow, I will never go back to church. I don't want anything to do with God because if that's the God that you're peddling, I'm uninterested. He only brought death and discouragement and no life to me as a child and I'm not about to trust him again. And that can become a rock that gets in the way. Or, or maybe it's not the rock of dead religion. Maybe it's the rock of church hurt. 
you, you went to another community before this one or you grew up in church and the very people who were supposed to be protecting you, the leaders and the pastors that, that were supposed to be creating a safe haven and a space where you could grow and meet God became the people that abused and traumatized and did unthinkable things or spoke unthinkable things over you. Sadly, we live in a day and age where documentaries and exposés seem to come out every single week that detail the events of trauma and detail the events of wounding that took place in sacred spaces. Individuals who share their story and others who can resonate because the very people that were supposed to be protecting them were perpetuating the acts of trauma that have brought them to the broken state that they're in. And those can become rocks that don't just keep you out of a church, they keep you from God. And speaking of documentaries, maybe it's the, the rock of the church's reputation that keeps some people out. The bride is a bit blighted these days, isn't she? I love the church, but man, a lot of people want nothing to do with her. Why? Because the reputation that she's garnered now on an international scale is one of misconduct, cover-up, fraud, sexual abuse. As some of the heroes that we used to look up to in the faith, it seems like one by one they are dropping like flies. And they're now on the global stage and when people see the church, that's what they see. And even among those, there's still other pastors who maybe haven't fallen morally, but they've done a very good job of vocalizing their support of a political persuasion, and they've built platforms around their political parties. Instead of teaching about the scriptures, they give campaign speeches, and they polarize not just in the church, but outside the church, leaving the very people that are broken and need to come to Jesus the most abhorrent and unwilling to even engage with the church because they say, if that's what the church is like, if that's what the church is for, I can't get behind this thing called church. So I want nothing to do with a bride that has that much mud on her face. Or maybe it's none of those. Maybe it isn't because of things that the church has done or leaders in the church have done. Maybe it's something that you're experiencing personally. Maybe it's the rock of repetitive sin. That, that temptation you can't seem to address or that addiction that you can't seem to break through. And in your mind, there's no way you can get to God until you get through that. Until I can stop, I have no business attempting to approach God. And so I'm gonna work on cleaning myself up, but it seems no matter how many times I tell myself I'm never gonna do it again, I do it again. No matter how many times I promise God I'll never do it again, I do it again. And so I just stay on the other side of this barrier at a distance from God until I can clean myself up. I hope these are resonating because I see a lot of heads nodding and these can become a wall, the very rocks that keep us from accessing the relationship that Jesus longs to have with his creation. And like an unused highway or a neglected alleyway, the longer these things sit, the harder it becomes for humanity to connect with their God. But even if we were to navigate through all of these, even if we were to have a moment of clarity to say, wait a minute, hold on. No, dead religion is not true religion. Jesus offers relationship. And I know that those leaders were broken 
but they don't always represent Jesus. Jesus is perfect. And the reputation of the church is because of broken people, but ultimately Jesus gave his life for this thing called the church, and he's perfect, so I can trust him even if I can't trust them right now. And this sin, isn't that the very thing that Jesus died to, to set me free from? So, so I know that I can get to him before I deal with that. Even if we got through every single one of these, there's still a rock that I feel so many people come up against that I've seen time and time again act as a barrier between humanity and their creator. And that is the rock of shame. The regret, that lingering voice in the back of your head that's like, you know what you did. God won't forgive you for that. That same old tired plan and strategy that the enemy has used since the beginning of time to keep people from God. You know the narrative of Genesis, right? They felt shame. And the enemy knows, as it was for Adam and Eve, it, it will be for us. If he can get us to feel shame, then we will run from God instead of running to God in times of failure. But I believe as we step into year six at the inaugural uh, sermon of this series, that it is the, the rock of regret, the stone of shame that God wants to deal with aggressively in the lives of every individual in this room. In fact, I know that is what God, God wants to do because it is the excavation of this stone which inspired the very name of the community you are sitting in right now. We are the Father's house because the Father's heart is that no son and no daughter would be kept back because of shame on the road to the house. That's who we are. And let me prove it to you. Uh, Jesus in Luke chapter 15 is, is being condemned by some of the religious leaders as a result of the company he's keeping. Uh, many are criticizing the fact that he seems to be hanging out with what the Bible calls disreputable sinners, the, the, the people that, that all of the religious folks say don't belong in the community as a result of what they've done. And in response to this criticism, uh, Jesus tells a collection of stories, parables as scripture calls them, to, to display to the Pharisees and the religious leaders why all of these broken people seem to love being around Jesus. He starts with a story of uh, a shepherd that had 100 sheep, and he loses one in the wilderness. But rather than staying with the 99 found sheep, he leaves and meanders through the wilderness until he finds that lost one, throws it over his shoulders, and brings it back to the flock and says, we need to celebrate now because my lost sheep has come back home. Second story is about a woman, a homeowner, who had a dowry made up of 10 coins, but she loses one of those coins in her house, and rather than be content with the nine she's got, she flips the furniture upside down and, and, and turns the house out until she finds her lost coin, and then she calls all of her neighbors and says, guys, come over, let's have a party and celebrate because my lost coin has been returned. But the third story in the collection is perhaps the most famous, and it's not about a lost sheep or a lost coin, it's about a lost child. Jesus said there's a man and he had two sons. And one of those sons asks for his father to give him his inheritance early. Uh, we know in their culture, based on what theologians tell us, and probably even in our own culture, that this would have been not only incredibly uncommon, but incredibly disrespectful. It was tantamount to saying, I wish you were dead, dad, and I'd like my inheritance now. But the father doesn't get angry with his son nor does he reject the request. He obliges and gives the son 
the inheritance prematurely. And having now received the money, Jesus tells us that the son goes out and begins to spend everything that he's been given in, quote, wild living. That is polite biblical terms. He was partying like a billionaire, swinging from chandeliers at the club every single night. He was having a good time, all right? Strike three. (laughs) But about the time the money runs out and all of his friends have left him, this young man finds himself broke and starving because a great famine has hit the land. And in desperation, he signs up to be the slave of a farmer who puts him in charge of the pig pen. His new job now is to feed slop to the pigs. And the story tells us he's so malnourished that even the food he was feeding to the pigs began to look appealing to him. But the whole story takes a turn in verse 17, where Jesus says that this young man finally came to his senses. He has a moment of clarity and begins to have this internal conversation where he goes on to say this. Okay, well at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go home to my father and say, Dad, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. And boom, just like that, the stone has entered the scene. We see shame in the life of the son. He wants to get back to the father. He longs to be in relationship with his dad and be under the covering of the house, but he's convinced himself because of shame that he no longer belongs in the family. Okay, I know that I've messed up pretty badly. My dad's probably not gonna take me back as one of his children, so here's what I'll do. I'm a slave right now. I might as well remain a slave and go serve in my father's house because at least then I'll get a little bit of food and also at least then I'll be in proximity to the father. I know that I can't live in the house. I don't deserve to live in the house anymore. But maybe I can just get around the house, experience a little bit of what dad has to offer, even though I'll be a slave and not truly a son. Shame has convinced him he doesn't belong there anymore. But after he rehearses this apology and begins to make his way home, look at what Jesus says about this father as the son returns. And with this, I'll invite the worship team to come as we prepare to conclude. But it says this, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Listen, theologians believe that the reason Jesus included this detail in his parable is to display for us that at the moment the son left, the father waited on the porch every single day, hoping and longing that his son would come back home. The reason he saw him coming is because he was longingly waiting for the son to return. And so when the son was a long way off, the father saw him coming, filled with hatred and disgust, filled with disappointment and anger, filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But the dad said to the servants, quick, 
bring the finest robe of the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening. We're gonna celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and he has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Note that the father did not stand on that porch with his arms folded, waiting for the son to come and grovel and apologize before he could be accepted again. Nor did he hang out in the house comfortably on the couch and say, well, I got another son. That one's, he's out there doing his thing. I don't really care about him anymore. I got, I, got, I got another one at the house. I'm good. Any parent with two kids knows that that's not how you would treat your child. No, what did he do? He waited anxiously on the porch for the return of his son. And at the first glance, he left the porch and he ran to the road and he embraced this son and began to kiss him. He did not respond with rejection. He responded with affection. And when the son launches into his apology speech, the dad doesn't even let him finish. He interrupts him mid-sentence and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Enough with your shame. Enough with your apologies. Enough with your groveling. I did not put this stone in the road to keep you away from me. I don't know who put it there, but it wasn't your father. And I'm not going to let this thing keep us from reuniting. I have been waiting for this moment for a long time. And shame is not going to rob us of this reunion. And enough with your slave talk, he says. You are not a slave. You are my son. My blood runs through your veins. You have my DNA. You're not coming back as a slave. You're coming back as my very own. Your past is your past. We're gonna go ahead and leave it there. It's time to move into the future. So stop apologizing, stop groveling. Enough with your shame. Put on your ring, put on your robe. We're going home, we're throwing a party because you were lost and now you are found. You were gone, but now you've been brought back to the house. And if it feels like I'm a tad excited about this story, it's because I am. Not because I love a good story with a happy ending, but because I recognize that this is not some fictional story contained in scripture about a fictional dad and a fictional son. This is my story. This is your story. This is the story of every individual outside this room right now who finds themselves in a pig pen of sin and is longing to come back into relationship with Jesus, but simply needs to be reminded they don't have to apologize and grovel and come back in shame, but they can come boldly before the Father because the Father has longed for them to return. They need to be reminded that nothing can separate them from the love of God. Neither height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come, nor principalities, nor powers, nor any of these rocks. Not dead religion, not sin, not bad reputation, and certainly not shame will separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. The truth of the gospel is that the road has been cleared by Jesus and all who are broken and thirsty may come and drink freely from the water that is found in his house. Guys, this is, this is why we're here. Because the Father left his porch in heaven and he walked down onto this road called earth. He got the dust and the rocks in his sandals. 
And he said, I'm not going to allow any of these things to keep people from me. I will give my life and take their place on the road so that I can usher them in to the house they belong in. Not just here on earth, but an eternal house. Because there is a seat at the table, a place prepared for all who come back home. And since that is the Father's heart, that is who we will be as the Father's house. Not just by name, but by action. For every person written on a card inside this box, for every name in the hallway written on cards that you see, for every name not yet written on one of these cards, for sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, coworkers, friends that have yet to come into relationship with Jesus, we will be the house that clears the way, prepares the road and removes the stones, especially shame, so that all who need to come to Christ can be found in his house. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.